Hello everyone, welcome to the Iron Wolf Kindred podcast. I know it's been a while since I've done one, but this is the first episode for basically my big relaunch. Um, I've decided to take a new direction with the podcast, and instead of uh, you know doing the story of Loki in the Long Winter, uh, which didn't really get a whole lot of interest, I wanted to just go in and do some studying and work through um, some of our sources. And the first one that I wanted to work on is the Prose Edda, um, which is a book that doesn't get a lot of attention in the heathen community just because yeah, a lot of people can't get pers- uh, past the uh, first chapter um, where there's obviously a lot of Christian influence. Um, they talk a lot about the gods actually being humans, um, just ancient human kings who were idolized so much that over time they became mythologically canonized as gods and, you know, divine deities, which, you know, really berates um, the faith down to being basically that our ancestors were ignorant and um, put their faith in men instead of in God, as they would have believed. Also, there's a whole lot of stuff about how they tried to um, say that the gods were actually Trojans, and that's just more of the kind of Roman mentality of their veneration of the Trojans and the Greek culture. Um, you know, like they, that's really what they did because they adopted a lot of the Greek gods, gave them their own names, um, copied their uh, architecture and all that stuff, and, and even, you know, adopted their language. Um, it's just a just a continuation of that into this age of you know where a lot of scholars were doing this kind of thing um, and it also has to do with the time period uh, the Holy Roman Empire was really rising up a lot of, a lot of the countries that already long within hundreds of years been converted to uh, Christianity and people were sort of looking to their past to form an identity, to take pride in who they were and, and prevent themselves from being absorbed into a, you know, one people, one God, one culture kind of thing. It, it was, it was uh, removing the mysticism from their past and still taking pride in it. And this happened in Germany, and this happened in France, and this happened in Italy, and and in England as well. Um, it was really what, what was going on all over Europe at the time. Um, but even still, if you can get past all that, this is a really great book, and I recommend it. I really do. I think that everybody should take at least a moment to read this book. Just check it out from the library. You're not really sure you want to drop the money to buy it, but I do. I, I bought it. I have it in my collection. Um, the version I have is the English translation of the Prosetta by Snorri Snorrelson, um, published by Penguin Classics. Um, trying to see here who actually did the translation here. I think from this front page, what it looks to be is that uh, it was a professor of Old Norse, Jesse Biak. Yeah. Um, as we all know, Snorri Snorrelson, uh, 
comprised this work um, in the 1100s. Uh, this book actually gives the exact date. It, it says that it was comprised by him between the years 1179 and 1241. So, a little bit of info there. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, which I think is interesting. I love history. I'm a huge history buff, so I mean, definitely uh, dig on all the fine details that get thrown in here. I mean, there's a map of the north where they actually show the, I think, the guesstimated locations of what some of these historical sites are that are referenced in here. Um, but, uh, you know, one reason I wanted to go through this is because one of the other books that I've gotten my hands on and read through was, I think, I think an attempt to try and put everything into a chronological order. Um, I think there's two editions of this book. It's called the Asatru Edda by the, I think it's called Norowina Society. And then I think they also published another book that's called the Odin, Odinist or Odinic Edda or something like that. Um, and I mean, it's cool. The biggest problem I had with it was that as you were reading the stories, it didn't have any kind of notations with it as far as which sources were used. Was this from the Prose Edda? Was this from Germania? Was the like, where did they get some of these details that they did? And as I was doing it, I did my own research. I was looking, and throughout the 1800s, there are several theorists that studied these works. And I think what they did when they published these books was they kind of looked at the theories and uh, a lot of it more or less is a fiction you know they they took those theories and they took the the writings themselves and just molded it together and I, I guess it's a good attempt it's it's definitely a good read I enjoyed it but I did see a lot of stuff that's not actually ever been in any of the Eddas or sagas that I've seen. And so like I said, I think it's a lot of theory and, and them just filling in blanks with what they felt was good for pushing the story and putting things together in a chronological order. So, a good attempt, I guess. But anyways, so but today we're going to talk about um, the prose Edda. And I'm not going to do the whole book on this. Um, what I am going to do is go through a little bit of it. Then on the next episode, I'll go through a little bit more until um, we get through it. Um, and then I'll go into the Poetic Edda. And uh, as soon as my copy of Germania shows up, um, I'll start working on that one as well. I also plan to record a few 10 episodes of my own um, that are just topics for neo-paganism, new, new age, heathenry, um, go into that, cover some of the hot topics that stir up a lot of crap in the online community, um, racism, bigotry, homosexuality, you know, here in America we got a big topic right now, women's rights and and uh, abortion and different attitudes towards that. I think the problem is that the heathen community has become very political. It's, it's because of the political situation we have in the United States right now because 
whether we like it or not, the United States is kind of the forefront for heathenry right now. I mean, it exists in Europe, it exists in South Africa and Australia and all these places, but ultimately the heart of all of this right now is in the United States. So what happens here does influence the heathen community and then it influences the heathen community throughout the whole world. So, um, but uh, I'm going to start not at the very beginning of this book, actually, because I'm going to go past all the, all the stuff where they try to compare the gods to Trojans and stuff, because it's really weird. It says, basically, that Thor is like the great-great-great-great-grandfather of um, Odin, which just doesn't make sense. Um, but on section four of this book... Says Odin's journey northward. I want to start here because there's some bits about the Aesir that I think are interesting that you wouldn't get otherwise. Like right here, it starts off with Odin had the gift of prophecy. We know this, um, and it also goes in his wife also did. So we know that Frigg and Odin both had the ability to to see the future and. Um, decide whether or not they were going to give signs to people who prayed to them about their future. But here we have it written, you know, they knew it. Um, yeah, I just... And it goes into talking about... Uh, the lineages of the ancient kings of Germany and Scandinavia and how they trace themselves back to being descended from Odin and, and according to this story this section at least Odin's journey northward this is sort of the explanation of how at some point Odin came to the earth with some of the Aesir and uh, set up kingdoms among the Germans and had children with humans, or his sons had children with humans. And so these royal families that rule over these tribes are the descendants of Odin. Um, uh, again, another, another objective that this piece of writing was meant to uh, do was solidify the ruling class of Germany and Scandinavia. Um, which was something that was being done in France and in England as far as justifying why they were kings, justifying how they came to be in power and that they were divinely appointed and and yeah so that's that's where this comes from but um, you get a lot of place names in this so we have Radgotoland um, here we have that they ruled over a place called, that is now called France, and at this area was ruled over the family that would come to be known as the Volsungs. says that in the north he chose a place for a town, and it was called Sigtun. And he appointed uh, rulers for that town. 12 men to administer um, and like I said in this section they really 
diminishes the gods down to just being humans, which is why you keep getting these words like men or women, when in fact it would really be Aesir or Veneer. Um, then it says he keeps going north until he reaches the ocean. Uh, this place was called Norway. He placed his son in power. This son was named Seeming, Norway's king. Or Norway's kings, as well as its jarls, uh, trace their descendant to him, as it is told in the Heligutatol. I'm sorry, I'm also still working on learning Norse pronunciation. Um, it's a very tricky language, but yeah. Uh, he also had with him his son, Yingvi. Uh, Yingvi, I think that's interesting there because, you know, uh, several tribes uh, claim to be related to Yingvi or descended from him. And uh, I think we even have a rune um, that comes from that. Or perhaps he is named after the rune. Um, it says, after him, he became a king in Sweden from whom those kinsmen called the Yinglings, hence the Yingvi, are descended. Uh, and that our language became the native tongue. Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Saxony. Or Saxony. Then we have the Gilfaginning, the deluding of Gilfi. And this is, this is where it gets really interesting because we have this King Gilfi um, and uh, he's gonna eventually go and seek out the Aesir and ask them all these questions about them and the gods that they worship so this is where it gets really weird because you know having the one thing where it's claiming the Aesir are Asians who are actually Trojans who conquered Troy and then left Troy and went north and that these Trojan humans worship gods who are also called the Aesir, who live in Asgard. Uh, and so Yingvi will go to the Aesir humans and ask them about their gods that they worship. So I think this is kind of interesting because it makes you wonder if maybe there was a human tribe that kind of went through Germany and uh, Scandinavia and introduced uh, the worship of the Aesir and Benir to um, the native tribes that were already living there. Which, you know, we know that Europe has been occupied for a long time and the Celts had it first for a very long time. Um, so it's, it's not an unusual story concept to think of that uh, of this especially when we study the lore and we kind of know that Odin created man and we were allowed to kind of rule on our own for a very long time and that our most of our interactions were with Venir and and Jotuns and then it wasn't until Heimdall was sent down Heimdall Rig uh, was sent down and taught us about the Aesir. That was sort of the moment where we learned about our true origins and the origins of the world, of man, of, of the earth, of Midgard, of the nine realms, of the Aesir. You know, going all the way back to the Janunga Gap. 
and so it could be that that tribe of people who once lived with uh, Heimdall Rig as uh, their first king and ruler before he returned to Asgard to be the watchman that it could be this tribe that then spread out across Europe and shared their wisdom with the other tribes and other people and they adopted the Aesir gods it's not at all an unusual concept I don't think at the very least um, but here we have and I'm just gonna read my highlighted notes because all of the, this is a lot to read but I'll read my highlighted notes so I have King Gilfi ruled uh, in Sweden uh, one day he offered a traveling woman uh, for the pleasure of her company a piece of plow land uh, she if or a piece of plow, plow land that was large enough that four oxen could plow it in a day and a night uh, Gefjun was her name and she was of the Aesir she took four oxen from Jotunheim uh, it goes into detail saying that these were her sons but I'm gonna skip all that the oxen dragged this land westward out to sea. It was called Skellin. Skelland. A body of water in Sweden, now called Logren, the lake, is where this was. Um, so that's his first encounter with an Aesir. Then we have. Uh, he was amazed by the Aesir so much that every or he noticed that the Aesir knew so much that everything went according to their wishes. So he went to seek out the Aesir. When he got there, he saw a fortress and a hall. It was so high he could scarcely see over it, and golden shields covered its roofs like shingles as Thildhof of Haven said Valhalla was roofed. Um, one of the fine details that I went through in this next section, which is very long, is just how, him walking up and who he talks to and that person taking him to the three kings, which is the human kings. Um, and I thought it was an interesting detail that as he's walking into the hall, the door closed after him. And he noticed this. So I thought this was interesting because it doesn't say the door was closed behind him. It said the door closed after him. As in the door closed itself. So by way of magic or whatever. Um, he saw many living areas. And in there people were playing games, drinking, and were fighting. Sounds an awful lot like Valhalla. Uh, he saw three thrones, each one higher than the other. The lowest, or the man told him that the king was in the lowest of the high seats. He was called High. Next, just as High. And the one highest up was called Third. High, let's see. Sorry. Then we have um, High 
said he was welcome to food and drink. So we have a mentioning of the hospitality. High said, Gilfie would not escape unharmed unless he grew wiser. Then we have a quote from the Havamal. Stand forward while you inquire, the one who recounts shall sit. Then we have section three of this. It says, the All-Father. Gilfie will ask, who is the highest or the oldest of all the gods? High replied, he is called All-Father in our language, but in Asgard, he is called the Old. He has 12 names. One is Allfather, Heron, Herjan, which means Lord, Nikar, Hepnar, Nikuz, Nikud, Fjolnir, which means Wise One, Oski, Fulfiller of Desire, Omi, Resounding One, uh, Biflidi, Biflandi, Spear Shaker. So obviously a reference to him either as a warrior or to him stabbing himself with a spear on the tree. Svidar, Svidvir, Vidvir, ruler of weather. So again, a reference to his power over nature. Jalg, Jok, which means gelding. Where is this god? What is he capable of doing, and what outstanding deeds has he done? Sorry if you can hear me turning the page, by the way. He replies, He lives through all ages and governs all things in his realm. He decides all matters, great or small. Just as High said, He made heaven, earth, and the skies, and everything in them. So, again, it's a reference to him making the world. Third said, most important, he created man and gave him a living spirit that will never die, even if the body rots to dust or burns to ash, which this is very important. You know, we have a spirit. It doesn't die. Our flesh does. One day we will, but we shouldn't fear it because there is an everlasting soul within us that won't be destroyed. It goes on. All men who are righteous shall live and be with him in that place called Gimli or Vingolf. So here we have really the closest thing to like heaven, I would say. Gimli is the place that we'll go live after Ragnarok and the remaking of the worlds. It is the hall that is built above Asgard in a higher heaven. Um, and a Vingolf is either another hall that is also in that, or it is uh, another name for Gimli. Um, it says here, but evil men go to hell, that is H-E-L, the realm, and from there into Nephilhel, dark hell, which is below in the ninth world. Um, and this part is interesting because, again, it's always interesting when you get details about the afterlife. Um, so, hell is a pretty big place. Uh, Nephilhel is the torturous realm that is below hell. Or the way that uh, Svartalfheim or the Dark Elfheim, the Dwarven lands, are actually 
within Midgard, as in below the surface, below the ground, a place that we physically could go to. Likewise, hell, once you go there, there's a place that is below what is above, and it is accessible the same way. And so this is Nephil hell, the dark hell, the below hell. Um, and, you know, this is, that is where evil men go. You know, those who have deeds that need to be punished. Because everybody goes to hell when you die. Your Haminga will guide you there, or if you're slain in battle, then it will be a Valkyrie that will guide you there. Because, as it is said, that the gods go sit every night at their uh, seats in the hell grind, which is the gates of hell. They have seats there, and you go there, and all of your ancestors are there to bear witness to you entering and potentially joining them. And uh, the Haminga speaks for you. And uh, so everybody will go there. And then, of course, in your, if you're taken to, in battle as a Valkyrie that speaks for you, well, your Haminga is there as well, but the Valkyrie speaks of your deed in battle and why you were chosen and that you are destined for Valhalla or uh, Volkvanger. And uh, Odin is sitting there, and so is Freya. So. You know, that's where they decide whether or not you are going to who or who, you know. Um, unless, of course, you were an evil man. So even if you were killed in battle and claimed by a Valkyrie, and all your deeds are accounted for by your Haminga and the witnesses of your ancestors, and by the gods who obviously have seen your whole life and know it, um, you can still end up being sent to Nephilhel and denied Valhalla. So, that's one one thing that uh, I don't think a lot of people grasp is, oh, if I die in battle, it's fine, I'm going to Valhalla. But, now, if you, if you were a heinous and evil man, and you did great, committed great vices in life, then, no, you won't. So, uh... Then it goes, where did he do, or what did he do before heaven and earth were created? Back then, he was with the frost giants. So, um, as we know, that the heavens, the nine realms, the earth, everything, was created after the death of Ymir. And so in that first world, that first existence, which was fire and ice, and in the Janunga Gap, among Ymir and Athumla, um, so lived Odin and his two brothers, and his father, and his grandfather, and his mother. So, you know, that's what that is referring to, is he was with the Frost Giants. Uh, we have detail on Nefelheim and Muspelheim. So he goes, what was the beginning, or how did things start? What was there before? And here's a reference from Sibyl's prophecy. Early of age, when nothing was, there was neither sand nor sea, nor cold waves. The earth was not found, nor the sky above. Janunga Gap was there, but grass nowhere. High said, Nephilhel, the dark world, was made many ages before the earth was created. And at its center is the spring called Havar 
Vargomir, Roaring Kettle. From there flow those rivers called Sval, Gunthra, Fjorm, Fimbulthul, Slid, and Rid, Silg, Yilg, Vid, Leptir. There is also Gaul, which lies next to Helgrind, Gates of Hell. Then we have, first, however, there was that world in the southern reach, region which is called Muspel. It is bright and hot. So this is quite clear that uh, in the beginning there was just Nefelheim and Muspel, but the first was Muspel, which is far older than Nefelhel. Nefelhel, or Nefelheim, sorry, Nefelheim came after. And Muspel lies in the south. Um, so I find that interesting. So we got to remember that little detail. Um, then we go into more detail about Muspel, which is that region flames and burns and is impassable for foreigners and those who cannot claim it as their native lands. So it's a place that not even the gods can go to. Um, Sirt, is black one, is the name of he who waits there at the land's edge to defend it. He has a flaming sword, and when the end of the world comes, he will set off to battle and defeat all the gods, burning the whole world with fire, so it is said. And then here we have a quote from Sybil's prophecy. Sirt comes from the south with the fiery destruction of branches. The sun shines from the sword of the gods of the slain. Stone cliffs tumble, and troll witches stumble. Mead tread, or men tread the road to hell, as the sky splits apart. So, what we get from this little detail is, one, Muspel is not a place that any of the gods can go to, but it is counted as one of the nine realms. Sirt is the ruler of this place. He has a flaming sword. Uh... And another interesting detail is that he will set off to battle and defeat all the gods. So I know that we have, um, in the one prophecy, I guess the Velespa, where it talks about how each of the gods will meet their fate, Thor against the serpent, uh, there's Tyr, and Odin against the wolf, and, you know, that whole thing. So that's that's the each individual battles that the gods will have with the different forces of chaos. But then here we have that Sirt and the fire giants will march from Muspel and they will defeat all the gods. Um, which I just think is a very interesting detail because most of the people think that they will be leaving the battle. But they won't be. That the only ones who will leave the Battle of Ragnarok are the ones who um, did not, uh, um, that were not present, the ones that stayed behind in um, Asgard. And the only humans who will survive are the ones who were hidden away by Mimir, which as I understand it, those humans have already been set aside long ago by Mimir when he first built the Hall of Gimli but I have to do a little more digging into that to make sure that that's not something that I misread somewhere or that I have picked up from reading like 
the Asatruetta or any of the other um, books or articles that I've I've been because I've been in I've been in in heathenism for about 15 years now, and so much has changed. So many different ideas have changed about the gods and various interpretations of things and. We have the modern influences of media and Marvel movies and video games and just just other things. So much has changed, really. Like, if you've been in heathenism as long as I have or even longer, you've seen so much of this community um, change. And uh, I try not to hold on to things firmly because they do change and also we're always finding new dig sites and new literature and people are going back through and retranslating things and seeing where something may have been mistranslated and correcting it and you just got to be open-minded to that and be willing to adopt it when that change is announced and not be that stubborn fool who thinks so wise of their wisdom it's not that hard to memorize something again something that has changed to unlearn something like if you're really at that point then you're, you're not going to have a good time in heathenism it's not going to help you be a good person and my thing is if you're going to be in a religion if you're going to be a religious person I mean you're doing this because one you want to be a good person two you're probably concerned about your afterlife and one of the misconceptions is that is that being pagan, being heathen, you don't have to be concerned with how you live your life. And I just think that's really wrong. You you should concern yourself with how you live your life. You should concern yourself about your reputation. Our ancestors put a huge emphasis on reputation. So why would we not? Is that not an aspect of neo-heathenism, even though it was an aspect of ancient heathenism? I don't know. I know I personally believe it is, and I'm hoping that you will too. But uh, moving on, here we have, and then here we go into more detail about the end of the world, men tread the road to hell. One of the other aspects of Ragnarok is that most people think they'll witness it, but they won't. If you read the stories quite clearly, it makes it very obvious that humankind and the world will be destroyed before Ragnarok, before the gods go to battle against the forces of chaos. And so those who will be claimed for Valhalla, who will march as Einherjar, will already be there. The whole possible army that can be assembled will have been assembled, and the rest of us will be marching off to Hellgrind to wait for the gods to sit on their, the remaining gods to sit on their seed, send us to our appointed place, and remake the world. So, uh, then it goes into Janunga Gap and the emergence of Ymir. How were things set up before the different families came into being and mankind increased? High replied, When those rivers, which are called 
Elevagar storm waivers, storm waves, came so far from their source. The poisonous flow hardened like a slag of cinders running from a furnace and became ice. When this ice began to solidify and no longer ran, poisonous drops spewed out and froze into icy rime. Then layer by layer, the ice grew within Janungagap. Then that part of Janungagap, which reached into the northern regions, became filled with thick ice and rime. Inside the gap, there was mist and wind whipped rain, or sorry, mist and whip, wind whipped rain. But the southern part of Janungagap grew light because of the sparks and glowing embers flowing from Muspelheim. Just as coldness and all things grime came from Nephelheim, the regions bordering on Muspel were warm and bright, and Janungagap was as mild as a windless sky. So this was a pretty favorable and nice area. Then thawed and dripped at the point where the ice rime and the warm winds met. There was a quickening in these flowing drops and life sprang up, taking its force from the power that sent the heat. The likeness of a man appeared, and he went er, and he was named Ymir. The frost giants called him Argolmir, and from him came the clans of the frost giants. So going north the ice or the the flow of the waters went north further away from Muspelheim and further into Janungagap and became ice. Whereas the ones that flowed south remained a liquid flow and grew faster and warm by the winds and the heat coming off of Muspel and so that was ideal for springing forth life and that's where Ymir came from, the first life. I think it's interesting also that uh, his name means Roarer, um, which so we have really the introduction of sound as well so here's an infinite dark void and suddenly it's filled with ice and fire and water and life and sound just an interesting detail you might want to take on. It says here another um, thing from the Sibyl's prophecy. All the seeresses are from Vidulf, all the wizards from Vilmade, but the sorcerers are from Svarthof D, and all the giants come from Ymir. So all the giants come from Ymir, plain and clear. Uh, I also like this detail that all the seeresses are from Vidolf. So that can also mean Golveg and Angerboda and, you know, well, just all the seeresses. And I wonder if that's, if it's referring to um, the teachings here or if it's actually like lineage, birth lineage. Uh, from where Aragomir first came, the wise giant, among sons of giants. When poison from Alavagar splashed out in drops, it grew until forming a giant. From there all clans have come, therefore they are all so cruel. So because he's formed from poison, which is obviously a deadly thing, a bad, cruel 
evil demon, even though we don't really have a concept of good and evil. Um, cruel thing. He also is just as cruel. So then we have, how did the families grow from the point? Or how did it come about the others came into being? And do you believe that the one whom you were just talking about is a god? Well, this anger's high, and he goes, In no way do we accept him as a god. He was evil, as are all his descendants. We call them frost giants. It is said that as he slept, he took sweating. Then from under his left arm grew a male and a female, while one of his legs got a son from the other. From here came the clans that are called the Frost Giants. The old Frost Giant, him, we call Ymir. So, we have the birth of a son from his leg. And I think this is actually a reference to Surt, the Fire Giant. Because it's not mentioned in here, in the Prose Edda. I think it's in the Poetic Edda, where it talks about... Um, uh, another manner of which the where it actually goes into a little more information about the fire giants and how they came to be and I think in that one it says it comes from his feet or or his legs as well because they were close to Muspel and he sweated from them as well and I'll have to look at it but um, so I think that for this story for the prose Edda, that um, when he's talking about the legs having a son with each other that they're talking about search whereas the male and female that grew under his armpit um that these were the first um giant and giantess then we have the primeval cow athumla so where did ymir live and what did he live on next it happened that as the icy rime dripped the cow called athumla was formed Four rivers of milk ran from her udders, and she nourished Ymir. So I think it, I think it's also interesting here that the icy rime, the poisonous rime, uh, dripped. It formed Athumla in the same way that it formed Ymir. Yet Athumla is not seen as an evil force. She's not seen as destructive. She doesn't give birth to any kind of evil creatures. Um, and she never does any vile deeds. Um, but, uh, yeah, she's formed the same way. And then, on what did the cow feed? And then it says, she licked the blocks of ice, which were salty. As she licked these stones of ice rime the first day, the hair of a man appeared in the blocks towards the evening. On the second day came the man's head, and on the third day, the whole man. He was called Burry. So again, here we have more influence that they're trying to push in here, demoting the gods to humans, because they talk about him being a man, that the first Aesir, the first giant, the first god, was buried, but he was actually a man that came from the ice. One of the things that I do take from this story is an interesting detail, is Buri was in the ice, and was set free from the ice by Atumala. And so that for that that tells me that somehow Burry was pre-existing. And I, I don't know how to grasp my head around that just yet. But I know one thing that we've discussed, just an open conversation amongst the various 
members of our kindred was we had a discussion about uh, about this and you know there's this idea of recycling the world and over and over again and I think one of the interesting things that got thrown out was what if this is actually just another variant of the world what if it's been created and destroyed once before and Musto and Nefelheim are remnants of that previous uh, world and that Buri is actually the only living being from that existence and thus he survived by being frozen in Nefelheim. Just an interesting thought. But then again you have in other sentences where it says that first came Muspel and then Nefelheim and that they came into existence within this existence. So then there we go, we have another complication with that theory. But it's also never explained how they came to be. But then we also know that the forces of the world that rule over everything are actually the runes. They're not conscious, they're not gods, but they are powers and they are constant. They've always existed, always will. So, maybe, maybe they are left over from another world. But anyways, going forward, he was beautiful, big, and strong. He had a son called Bor, who took as his wife the woman called Vesla. So again, here we have woman. This can't be possible because humans haven't been created yet because humans are created by, you know, uh, Odin and his brothers. Um, so I think in the other story about this, um, I think it says Besla is an ogress or a giantess. And so that actually makes a little more sense. So. Um, Buri has a son called Bor, and Bor takes a wife from among the giants, amongst the descendants of Ymir, who are born from the first man and woman, or first um, ogre, and, or giant and giantess. And maybe the first giantess is Besla, who knows. But she was the daughter of Balthorn the giant, and they had three sons. See, I've already been corrected on this. I should know better because I've read this before, but whatever. Um, so, Balthorn predates Vesla. So, um, yeah. One was called Odin, another Vili, and the third Bay. It is my belief that this Odin and his brothers are the rulers of heaven and earth. We know that his name, or we know that that is his name, and it is what we call the one whom we know to be the greatest and the most renowned. And you too can easily call him that. So this is an invitation uh, by Hi to uh, um, Hey, you can worship my God too and call him the highest one that you know. So now we have Odin and his two brothers. I think, honestly. Yeah, 47 minutes here. This is a good place to stop. And we'll continue. I'll probably record another one tomorrow or in the next day or two. I'm trying to get podcasts done before uh, I have to return to work because then who knows when I'll have the free time to do this. But I just want to thank you guys for listening to this episode, writing this out all the way to the end with me. 
hope that you learned something. Again, I strongly encourage you, go to Barnes & Noble or go to your local library, check out the Prosetta. Any edition, but the one that I'm reading, again, is the one published by Penguin Classics. So, get that one, or find whichever one is best suited for you. Uh, again, I'm also going to be doing another breakdown where I'm going to go into the Poetic Edda as well once I'm finished with the Prose Edda, and then I also would like to discuss in full the Asatru Edda by the Noriano Society because this is a book that I was first referred to by another Asatru um, individual. I'm not Asatru really anymore. I don't belong to an Asatru kindred. I run my own kindred, but so we're going to break down those. We're going to talk about them. And then, of course, when Germania comes in, I will also start working on that because there's not a lot of information about that one. And yet it is such a huge book. I mean, the difference between Germania and these other books is that these ones were written after the conversion, after paganism was no longer even really being practiced. And then, um, whereas Germania was written accounts collected during the Roman era, before they even converted to Christianity, when they themselves were still pagan. And um, I just think that that would be a much more interesting and, and uh, inspiring book about our ancestors and about our gods. So, thank you for coming. Hope you enjoyed. As always, hail the gods, hail the ancestors, and hail the Iron Wolf Kindred.